Hey, before we jump into the podcast, just want to give a quick reminder, if you're new here to the Holistic Nootropics podcast, to please just take a quick second and subscribe to the podcast. It takes literally a second to do. Just hit the subscribe button right there in your podcast player. Also, if you want to help us out, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Now, if you're more of a visual person, you like to actually watch the podcast, you can actually do that over on the Holistic Nootropics YouTube page. Just go to youtube.com, search Holistic Nootropics, you'll see our page pop up. Subscribe to that, hit the little bell icon so you can get notified every single time new videos drop because we don't just do podcasts over there, we do product reviews, we do all kinds of nootropic and biohacking and holistic health topical videos. So go on over, check us out on the Holistic Nootropics YouTube page. And for all things nootropics, nutrition, and biohacking related, go on over to holisticnootropics.com. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. You're listening to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, your home for holistic, evidence-based cognitive enhancement strategies. And now your host, Eric Levi. Hey, what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, where we discuss using nootropics, nutrition, and biohacking to help you hack the power of your brain. My name's Eric, I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, and today on the podcast, I have Dr. Sean Saska. Dr. Sean is an award-winning writer, naturopathic physician, functional medicine practitioner, and licensed acupuncturist who has used a holistic approach to treat thyroid conditions effectively for over 20 years. He specializes in thyroid, adrenal, and digestive disorders. His detailed understanding of the interconnectedness of all of the systems of the body allows him to better serve his patients by finding effective solutions to their health concerns. So with that, enjoy my podcast today with the great Dr. Sean Zosko. I'm actually very excited for this podcast today with you, Dr. Saska, because, you know, as we talk about looking for holistic solutions to enhance cognition, invariably the thyroid comes up. It's not talked about, you know, especially in the sure. nootropics community, in communities where we talk about biohacking, nobody's ever talking about the thyroid. And I find it's such a missed opportunity and really a misunderstood part of the body by most mainstream physicians. So before we get into the nerdiness of the thyroid, let me Absolutely. ask you a little bit about your background as a naturopath physician, how you got started there and what ultimately drew you to this research you do on the thyroid. Right. Well, I mean, for me, my background really began uh, in more the undergrad world where I was studying genetics and biochemistry. So my, uh, my focus is very much biochemistry. That's my, that's my, my root point from which I look at all things is from that perspective. And for me, I actually got drawn into naturopathic medicine through a very, my senior project, which was a very interesting study in which I was looking at how nutrition affected, affect uh, the HIV virus. I was actually going to do my PhD in, uh, in studying HIV and the virus virology was kind of where I was going. And I came across the study in which they were using, uh, nutrition, specifically selenium to, uh, to stop the encoding of the HIV virus. Uh, now this was done in a laboratory setting. And so the, the amount of selenium they're using in this instance, which is a mineral found in our soil was so high, it was not viable for, you know, a therapeutic purpose, but it just got me started. I'm like, well, if selenium does this, what do other minerals and vitamins do to the body? And then I radical left turn and ended up in naturopathic medicine. 
and then once I actually graduated, I uh, came into thyroid medicine really with a patient who um, she was a Ukrainian immigrant. We have a lot of Ukrainian immigrants in Portland. And she had just had her fourth child and she was having this huge issue with her thyroid, this thyroid roller coaster, I'll call it, where she was going extremely hypo, where she had no energy. She was like basically just bedridden to going to this extreme hyperthyroidism where she felt like her heart was going to burst out of her chest. And this was a, what, I call, what I call cyclical Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune condition. And that got, my, got me started on that journey. And um, I soon quickly discovered that a lot of the conventional medical world didn't have much to offer. And so I started studying the nuances of the thyroid, uh, the things that go wrong with it, and the absolute essential role it plays in our, our health, which is just, it's, it's, it's really, you know, fundamental. You don't have a normal functioning thyroid, a lot of issues are going to ensue. So that was kind of my starting point. And that was shoot 2001 when that all went down, you know, shortly after I had graduated. So it's been a long journey since. And when you say, you know, you, you start looking into how the thyroid goes wrong, you know, yeah. where, where does it start? You know, like it, you probably see people when they're already well down the line Absolutely. of thyroid issues. And, and at least my familiarity with, with the, you know, the naturopath, naturopathic pros, uh, practice is by the time someone goes and sees a naturopath, they've already been through the ringer of all the other doctors. So they probably had a, a whole, you know, ca uh, cascade of different medications and all kinds of <laughs> therapies and just nothing yeah. works. And, you know, right. probably for you, it comes back to, well, let's do some detective work and see where, where does the thyroid problem start in, in your opinion? Well, I mean, a lot, there's a lot of variables, uh, but I mean, really, if you kind of boil it down to the fundamental, I'd say a majority of people have an autoimmune thyroid condition, uh, meaning that the immune system's attacking the thyroid. Uh, that's a vast majority. I mean, if we talk about percentages, we're looking at about 95% of the population who has a thyroid issue will have an autoimmune thyroid issue. And uh, now the origin of that, we talk about root cause, there's a lot of variabilities. I mean, I would really point a lot of attention towards the gut, that's a huge issue, uh, but there could be viruses, there can be issues with um, uh, chronic infections. I've seen dental infections, that's a real interesting one. Um, and I'm sure some holistic dentists might have some thoughts on that. Uh, and also I've seen things like mold. I mean, uh, that's oftentimes a huge issue, especially here in the Pacific Northwest, we have a lot of mold issues. So in terms of possible causation around that, there's a lot of variations. And I would say primarily, I'd say if you really boil it down, I'd say stealth infections, gut issues uh, are really at the very top of that. And I hear this a lot. I hear, I hear this, this gut thyroid connection, but yeah. I kind of get it because I've, I've looked into it a lot, but I think to the common person, can you explain how that works? Cause it, it, when you think about it, gut thyroid, how, mm -hmm. like, how does that make sense? Right. So in the context of that, really what we often see is uh, there can be a infection in the gut commonly that's the most common scenario and what that does that leads to intestinal permeability also known as leaky gut syndrome that sets off the immune system so the connection between the gut and the thyroid is the immune system itself so we have 80 percent of our immune system in our gut and that's just by by natural evolution the process the fact that you know we're taking in a lot of uh you know 
material from the outside in terms of food. And, and historically, that's not always been the, the cleanest source. So this immune system uh, uh, in our gut would be there to kind of capture anything that doesn't belong, identify it as a problem. So we have survivability. So now fast forward to our current situation. Now we're seeing that the gut has been weakened a lot of times, uh, oftentimes bad, bad diet, unhealthy diet, the overuse of antibiotics weakens the gut and, you know, things like uh, acid blockers and, you know, medications like that also weaken the gut as well. So it sets it up for this intestinal permeability, which actually ends up leading to uh, the, this overactivity of the immune system uh, and often what's called molecular mimicry, which means that certain things look like, as an example, gluten is a good example of this. So the protein sequence of gluten looks very similar to the, the tissues in the thyroid. So that's one theory that can drive that. Uh, likewise, there are bacterias that are known to um, affect the thyroid through the gut itself. So those are some examples right off the top. The gluten thing is crazy. The gluten thing, and I don't mean crazy like it, like it's, like it doesn't make sense. It, it's crazy in right. that that's actually something that they discovered because hmm. the way that I understand it is, it, it, like you said, the the gluten proteins mimic the thyroid hormones. It's almost like they they kind of disguise. It's the the molecular makeup of the hmm. of the gluten protein looks similar to the immune system as the thyroid. So in mm -hmm. those times when you're not taking in gluten, mm -hmm. the immune system is still, you know, is still being triggered because it, it trained itself to think that, or to know that the gluten is a foreign invader. And when the gluten is yeah. not around, it goes, well, let, well, mm -hmm. up there at the thyroid, they got a whole bunch of gluten and then mm -hmm. the, the immune yeah. system attacks the thyroid. Is that, is that somewhat correct or? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the, the, I, and this is just one theory of many. And, and so I do see a, a lot of like clinical, practical uh, clinical application in this case. And I should back up and say that, you know, celiac disease, which uh, is essentially an autoimmune reaction to gluten. Uh, which causes a lot of damage in the intestines, there's a very strong parallel between those with celiac disease and those with uh, Hashimoto's. And so a lot of people with celiac disease will have Hashimoto's and, and vice versa. And so uh, that is an extreme example there of this kind of leaky gut at its very worst. And so, yeah, that is a big player. Uh, likewise, another, you know, to kind of throw it out there, I mean, um, you know, even viruses within the thyroid is another factor too. So, you know, to kind of even look locally can be especially relevant. But to go back to the gut for a second, uh, there's some really interesting research that shows that some bacterias uh, can actually uh, be a massive trigger. Uh, uh, H. pylori is an example, which is a, a bacteria that invades the stomach can actually be a massive trigger for Hashimoto's because of the, the, the interaction between uh, the bacteria and the immune system. Wow. And, and candida plays in there somewhere as well, from what I understand. Absolutely. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's, a, it's a definitely a big player. Uh, and that one has a huge effect because you do have the, uh, the actual uh, toxin produced by candida, and that gets into the bloodstream and can really alter a lot of things, especially brain function too, uh, interestingly enough. So there's a lot of parallels there where we see uh, that can affect the thyroid. It can affect, you know, the actual interior landscape of the, the intestines, but uh, a lot of things. A matter of fact, uh, an interesting study uh, in which they looked at the effects of candida 
as a causative agent for depression, which was particularly interesting. And they found that it actually overwhelmed the liver, which actually is interesting because you look from a Chinese medicine perspective, they associate, you know, liver stagnation with depression. And here we have a, a example where a back, you know, in this case, yeast is actually causing that to occur. Yeah. The more I, I learn about depression, the more it just blows me away. And this is so, you know, tacky in 2021 to say, but the gut brain or the, the mind body connection, because, mm -hmm. because the body is doing 95% of the work. And then mm -hmm. the mind is just kind of like taking, taking all of that stuff and interpreting mm -hmm. it. So yeah. it's, you know, whether you look at it from a Chinese uh, medicine perspective where, you know, you have liver, uh, uh, liver dysfunction, or I think in Chinese medicine, there's also something with the kidney at play as well. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, from like, uh, from an actual medical standpoint, it's like the gut is making 95% of your serotonin. It's making 50% of your dopamine. It's making 50% of your GABA. And Absolutely. it's like, this is why, in my opinion, just relying on, and not to disparage pharmaceutical medication, mm -hmm. but just to take yeah. an SSRI or an antidepressant, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. or, or something like that for your depression. I mean, you're really missing the actual, right. the actual therapy that can help you. Well, absolutely. And I think, uh, I think it's, it's a kind of a great disservice to people to uh, assume that any pill will do, will solve all your problems. I think that is a huge uh, issue in our culture. It's something that's kind of just, you know, embedded into our, our mindset that, Oh, take the pill, all your problems go away. And I'm sorry to say that's just not the case. And uh, that's, that's, and also that's to be expected with thyroid medication. I see time and time again, day in, day out with patients saying, Oh, I, they gave me this medication. And, uh, and, and then my doctor told me that I should be fine. And then any symptoms I have are not related to my thyroid. And I think that's just like, you know, a bunch of nonsense because, you know, again, replacement of the, of the hormone doesn't actually uh, resolve the, the, the cause itself, what caused this to happen in the first place. So can you clear up then how thyroid hormones work? Because sure. I, I'm, this is a thing that confuses me <laughs> to no end because, you know, I know when I've gotten these, these blood tests or I've worked with mm -hmm. people who've gotten these blood, they shimmer the blood tests and they go, you know, look, I'm, I'm all in the range of the, you know, of the hormone and the, and mm -hmm. the, and the T4 and the T3. Um, mm -hmm. but when I listen to functional medicine practitioners talk, they go, well, these, these numbers aren't correct, you know, because it's based on, and like most standard you know, lab tests, you know, it's based on an average sick population. And so yeah. really these numbers are actually should be scaled way down. Um, and that's where you should actually assess. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how, you know, like what is T4, what is T3, what is reverse sure. T3 and you know, how do you how, like TSH and how do you read, what, what is the correct way to read these labs? Right, right. So starting off, um, a couple of things. Well, first off, when we're talking about TSH, that is actually not produced in the thyroid, but instead produced in the, in the pituitary, which then sends the signal to the thyroid. And so it's essentially saying, here, make more or make less hormone in relationship to a feedback loop that is in the brain. So it's really the hypothalamus pituitary and then thyroid working together to regulate the amount of production. So uh, as a lab test, uh, I, I see a lot of issues around that. One is that conventional practitioners 
simply have too wide of a range. I mean, it, typically most of your um, labs will use a range between 0.4 and 4.5, which is really quite too wide. So you know, as you had mentioned, that fits into you know, the functional perspective, which has a much narrower range of acceptability. Now, in terms of physiological change, we see when the TSH goes above 2.5, we start to see things like cholesterol going up. We start to see changes in the body that indicate that thing, the metabolism is slowing down. And uh, to back up even further, we say that the thyroid's primary job is energy production and just regulating metabolism. The over overall set rate at which the cells operate. Uh, so the TSH, we have an issue in terms of interpretation and then also even taking action. I mean, the conventional practitioners, some will take action at 4.5, others want it to be 10, which is just like you're talking about someone dragging due to fatigue at 10 before they even look at medication. Um, so TSH, again, is a feedback loop from the brain, the pituitary to the thyroid and then measuring the actual thyroid hormone production, uh, that's going to be looking at T4, T3. And the thyroid primarily produces T4, some T3. And that T4 is then circulated to key areas that then convert it to T3. T3 is the biologically active hormone. That's the, the workhorse of the body. And T3 is what goes to the cells and directs them to perform their functions. So the conversion process has to take place. And uh, there, there are a lot of people who have issues with that. So primary sites of conversion are going to be the liver, the kidneys, and no surprise, the intestines, which kind of comes full circle back to the thyroid intestine connection. Uh, so those are, those are the main sites for conversion. So basically the, the, the hypothalamus pituitary, that's mm -hmm. producing your, your, is it thyroid stimulating hormone? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And that's pituitary doing that. Yeah. Right. So basic, so if I know this right, uh, and I can't promise that I do, but your brain, your, your, uh, your hypothalamus pituitary is basically sensing, uh, sensing a need for thyroid. So it's sending mm -hmm. this hormone to the thyroid and it's like, mm -hmm. you know, kind of knock on the door, like, Hey, we need some, we need some T4. We need some yep. T4. Mm -hmm. And, I think that like, I've seen doctors who have this thing of like, well, more of that, more, like a higher TSH number is better than a lower TSH. I feel like I've seen, maybe I'm wrong, um, but it's like you said, if you're getting too much TSH and the thyroid's not responding, this is where, this is where you're seeing the problem. And you're yeah, seeing, absolutely. May, maybe I have this backwards. Maybe it's, they, you know, you don't want too much T4 because that could also be an indicator because maybe it's producing too much T4 in relation to T3. Um, this is why it's confusing because <laughs> right, right. this, is, this gets a little, uh, a little wacky. Oh um, yeah. It's, a, it's the stuff of ice cream headaches all the way. Uh, right. And so really, I mean, the way I think about this is uh, you know, the, again, the T4 produced in the thyroid has to get converted. And um, there are often hiccups in that process where that, that, the T4 conversion doesn't take place. Um, and that's why I see a lot of problems. And typically if you have a lot of T4 and there are certain thresholds, I mean, if you've got a, a lot of T4, then you might be thinking, okay, maybe a person has hyperthyroidism in which is a different autoimmune condition in which the thyroid produces way too much. And that's kind of a whole different animal uh, than what we're talking about primarily. Uh, typically, um, when we see a little bit higher T4, and that's why I always test for T4 in the labs, uh, and I compare it to T3 and sometimes we'll, we can suss out that, you know, the conversion is not taking place. 
the 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 net results the same. People are still tired. They're still losing their hair. They're gaining weight. They can't think straight. Brain fog. Short term memory issues. Mood issues. All of that. Uh, so those that's often a, that could be a, a set point right there that can be a problem, which actually introduces us to reverse T3. Now that is a process in which T4 gets converted into a different form of T3, which which is very similar, but distinctly different. And it's much like uh, the analogy would be worthwhile considering is like a key that is cut wrong. It may fit into the lock, but it doesn't open the door. And so uh, reverse T3 is biologically inactive and it will bind to the cell receptors, shutting down the possibility of more T3 getting in there. So, and it is a natural process. T reverse T3 is something the body creates, but it does so as a means of putting on the brakes. So it is basically saying, nope, we got to stop. So if you're seeing then high T4, low T3, and higher reverse T3, then that's probably an indicator that, that the cells aren't accepting. Maybe there's a low conversion somewhere in the liver, the gut, the yeah. kidney. Um, yeah. And then in that case, then do you try to treat the liver, kidney, or gut, um, you or are you to. going straight for the thyroid? Well, you have to you have to address it. I mean, because I mean, ultimately, you want to put the person back into balance. And so, uh, one of the things that's really worth considering too is that you know you have certain uh, enzymes that are part of the conversion process, and. Uh, these enzymes uh, and, and the specific, you know, ones in the liver are very much dependent on selenium and zinc. So a lot of times you have to look, uh, turn your attention that way. Is there a deficiency there? Is there, that could really inform things there. So a deficiency could be a factor. Also the health of the liver, does a person have a, you know, any sort of comprom compromise in their liver or their intestines? Certainly we see a lot of intestinal issues. Uh, and then also that brings up a whole nother can of worms here, which is toxicity. Mm -hmm. I mean, the liver is very overtaxed. We got pollution. We've got all these things that we're inundated with day in, day out. And so the liver can be very compromised in that, in that fashion. So that, that's a huge piece. Right. So, okay. So selenium, zinc, these are factors. Where does iodine come in? Because iodine is a big thyroid mineral. Yeah. So iodine is more directly related to the thyroid itself. So iodine is, is actually uh, the key uh, ingredient. So when we say T4, it's so named because it actually has four iodines attached to the center uh, molecule. So, it, it, so th that protein is the four iodines. T3 is three iodines. So that is where the iodine fits in. So it is specific to the thyroid. Uh, now, uh, what is interesting about that is that in an autoimmune condition, a lot of times too much iodine can even be a trigger for Hashimoto's and can even possibly make it worse. And the reason for that is that the antibodies that get attacked are, uh, are active relative to the presence of iodine. So, so much, too much iodine can actually set the antibodies, increase the antibodies and thus overstimulate the immune system. See, this is why people <laughs> need to go see professionals before they start buying stuff. Because, oh, yeah. you know, if someone's listening to this and they go, they got their notepad and they go, okay, Dr. Sean said zinc, zinc. That's on the, that's on the Amazon, yeah. uh, that's in the Amazon cart. Okay. Yeah. Selenium. That's in the Amazon cart. Iodine double up on that. But wait, there's too much iodine. Oh it's, no. Yes. Yes. It's the middle path. Not too much, not too little. Um, 
And yeah, and so specific to autoimmunity. Now, uh, generally speaking, and, and this is something that the World Health Organization put out indicating that iodine deficiency was historically a big part of hypothyroidism. But in 2014, the World Health Organization announced that the, there really is no more of these iodine deficient uh, hypothyroidism. So that is not part of it. Now, there are some people who in the medical community that really don't buy that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I definitely think that um, I've seen it in action where too much iodine can be a problem. Um, and so you'll see other people out there who say, no, you need a ton of iodine to treat this. And I don't really agree with that. And I, the science kind of backs that up that it's, it's, you know, too much is a problem. Uh, you still need some in your diet, no question about it. But uh, I think that in the alternative medical world, I think that this, uh, you know, kind of like powerhousing things with iodine is a mistake. I think that oftentimes is not the way to go. And I've heard with Hashimoto's, especially iodine can be, um, can be problematic. It's almost mm -hmm. like you're, you're, you're literally rubbing salt into a giant wound. Yeah. Or gasoline on a fire is a good analogy too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. So if you're, if you're sitting there and you know, you've got Hashimoto's or you might suspect you've got some thyroid issue going and you're like, mm -hmm. okay, well, I thought I was going to buy these supplements, but I'm not going to get these supplements. So like, mm -hmm. how do I get, how do I get these nutrients? How do I get selenium? How do I get iodine? How do I get right. zinc? Well, certainly, I mean, certainly foods that are high in selenium. I mean, Brazil nuts are well known to be some of the highest in the world and a lot of other uh, beans and nuts are pretty high as well. So in terms of food sources, that's probably the, the best. Uh, matter of fact, the, the amount of selenium in Brazil nuts is quite, quite large, quite high actually. So, I mean, you're getting far more than the, the average. Now in terms of supplementation, um, you know, we typically want to consider like your daily intake from food and supplements. You've got to add it all together because it is possible to get too much selenium. So again, this is not that that's going to be impactful for the thyroid in a negative way like iodine is, but it's just overall, you know, it can be, there's possibility of getting too much there. But uh, so your, a lot of your nuts are going to be high in selenium. That's a real big takeaway there. And then supplementation is oftentimes helpful too. Okay. So th that's, that's good to know. Um, you know, it's really about, it really is about balance, you know, and I think sure. even more importantly, it's with the thyroid and you alluded to this earlier is mm -hmm. really avoiding the things that sabotage it, you know, yeah. and, and that could yeah. be, that could, that could take some work to figure out, but how bad of a trigger do you see this environmental toxicity? And are there any specific toxins um, that you know of environmental toxins, just oh, regular boy. household things, things in the food we talked about gluten oh, yeah. um, that are really triggering to, to, to thyroid problems? Oh, here we go. It's on. Um, <laughs> seriously, it is. I'm actually writing my second book on this topic itself and it is, it's, it's mind blowing. So, so to start off with, we see a lot of pesticides. Um, one of the ones that really is, a, it's not so common in the United States, but DDT, DDT is a huge issue. Uh, and it's still legal in two countries and that's, and still produced specifically China and India. So, um, you know, and so since we get a lot of our food from around the world, 
we don't know if you're getting exposed to DDT. That one and, and several other, there's a, there's a number of different pesticides that are well known to specifically um, alter the, uh, the thyroid itself. So it, in those instances, it actually prevents thyroid from producing um, the actual thyroid hormone. So you're seeing a shutdown there and it also prevents conversion. And then a third thing that they do is they actually shut down the receptor sites at the cell itself which is a whole nother piece that is hugely impactful. And so pesticides are a big factor, uh, certain herbicides, uh, a lot of the new, new ones. And of course, you know, things like Roundup is one that is looking to be uh, another big culprit too. So that's, you know, we've got some very, uh, some modern ones that are being used that are also problematic as much as the ones that have been historically phased out. Yeah, the, the glyphosate, oh, sorry, were you gonna... No, no. Oh, I was going to say the, the glyphosate thing is it's such a it's so frustrating because it's it's in everything at this point. And it's yeah. like, how do you how do you eat in the modern food supply? You do everything you can. You know, you you go to the farmer's market, you mm -hmm. shop as organic, you do this. But it's just, um, you know, I have a friend who works in the in the food, uh, the food business. And they have a they have a motto when it comes to organic food, which is the wind blows because mm -hmm. the organic farms are right next to the, um, you know, pesticide sprayed farms sure. and they drop the pesticides for they, you know, um, what is it? Crop dust, uh, yep. um, the, the crop. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the wind blows and it all goes and it's and the organic labeling is all a little you know hocus mm -hmm. pocus and so mm -hmm. how do you how do you avoid that right that's the frustrating thing well absolutely and that actually brings up another point that's worthy of consideration is which is toxic minerals uh so i mean you, you toxic metals so arsenic uh that one is very commonly found in pesticides uh we certainly see uh some some to some degree some cadmium some uh mercury and things like that. So as it comes to organic, you're not always guaranteed to be absolutely free of uh, these metals. So it is, a, it is a point of like, you know, keeping an eye on things. So I mean, a good example of that is people who eat rice. Uh, a lot of those, a lot of the water they use for raising, you know, for growing rice can be very much laden with arsenic. So it's a huge issue there. Uh, I don't know if you saw, uh, there's something going around in the news um, in which they're talking about baby food organic baby food specifically has been found to be full of lead, arsenic, uh, and other, other heavy metals that are problematic. So, uh, it's, it's a, it's a real trick, tricky thing. So I think farmer's markets are better in the sense that you can get to know the, the, the growers and, um, but the soil is a, is a big factor and they need to kind of revamp the whole organic label. I think it's been uh, watered down from its original intent due to big business. I hate how much as I hate to say that. Yeah. And with rice specifically, I've heard in, in this instance, white rice is actually brown rice for this very reason, because it's the, the, mm. the hole on the brown rice actually holds the arsenic. So you have mm. to get rid of that and then eat the white, even though the white rice spikes the glycemic index a little bit more. Right. Um, right. You just can't win. <laughs> well, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a frustration for sure for a lot of folks. Uh, and then in, in some ways you do have to pick your battles. And, and, and for me, I, what I typically do is I look at a patient and figure out where the issues are because not everybody's going to have every possible trigger or cause. So again, it's like, okay, one patient A might have a very significant digestive issue. Patient B, it's, you know, a virus such as Epstein-Barr or something like that. That's a trigger. Uh, patient C, it might be more about like, you know, chronic sinusitis can be a trigger for 
thyroid issues. Uh, and so looking at that, maybe food allergies in that individual and its role will, relative to leaky gut. So it is about picking battles, but um, yeah, but going back to the environmental piece. Yeah. I mean, I think also household chemicals, which is kind of what you kind of were uh, talking about briefly is a big factor. So a lot of the things like the phthalates, uh, you know, things like, um, uh, you know, things like parabens are a huge issue, a lot of skincare products. And I don't know if you've mentioned it before, but I often use like environmental working groups, uh, databases, which are especially helpful. Like skin deep is great for picking out products that don't have the sketchy stuff in them. So those are, I think, important. Hey, just want to take a quick second to tell you guys about a new CBD product that I am absolutely loving. This is Airtree Live Hypo CBD. This is a CBD topical spray. So you actually spray the CBD onto your skin, you rub it in, and it bypasses all the digestion, it gets absorbed epidermically through your skin directly into your bloodstream. So it's actually 17 times more effective than traditional CBD tinctures. It's made here in America in a GMP certified facility, all with organic natural ingredients, and you get 30 milligrams of CBD per per serving, which my stoner friends tell me is a lot. So you can actually get yourself a free sample of this Airtree Live Hypo Topical CBD. Just going over to holisticnootropics.com forward slash live hypo. That's all one word, live hypo, one word, and get yourself a free trial of CBD. So again, holisticnootropics.com forward slash live hypo. Sign yourself up, get some free CBD, try it out. If you don't like it, give this stuff to your grandma with arthritis, move on with your life, or get yourself some more CBD and feel gravy. Okay, let's jump back into the podcast. So I want to circle back to yeah. some of the some of the brain stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. The, the brain fog. I, I I'm so fascinated by by brain fog because mm-hmm. it's it feels like something that so many people deal with. I've dealt with it, and mm-hmm. I don't think anybody has like a perfect life where they don't live you know a day ever without some brain fog. You know, especially sure. if you if you live where you go out to eat, but chronic brain fog and then ultimately depression i know is is tightly linked to the the thyroid so so maybe mm-hmm. you could talk a little bit about you know what you see in your practice you know with with this kind of thyroid brain fog depression connection right so i mean really um when we think about you know thyroid function it's influencing every single cell in the body with the exception of red blood cells any cell that has dna is influenced by the thyroid so brain cells i mean absolutely so uh it, it regulates the amount of uh, of you know the production of serotonin dopamine all of the neurotransmitters associated with mood uh and then it also affects cognition as well so we'll often see that these these individuals uh just because the brain is just operating at a slower pace than it should they they're having this you know memory issues they're having the brain fog where they're just not able to focus on tasks because the chemicals aren't there so a lot of it is about getting the brain to kick up its its pace relative to um the the actual thyroid production so that's a part of it and then too there is instances where people actually have and have, you know, they have like inflammation in the brain. Uh, there is a condition, I don't know if you've heard of it, but leaky brain syndrome. So yeah. that's, 
Maybe. Yeah. yeah so. I've written about it on, um, on my website. It's, it's yeah. fascinating. I know it's tied into, into leaky gut, which is funny because it's like you said, yeah. the leaky gut ties into the, the thyroid. So it's, it's almost yeah. like this, this orchestra that all kind of works together and yeah. everybody's communicating with each other. Um, but maybe you could talk a little bit about how the, how the leaky brain, how that works. Well, I mean, in essence, there's an association with certain chemicals in the gut, like zonulin is often released, and that can actually lead to uh, uh, the the actual blood-brain barrier separating where the, the what should be a very tight juncture suddenly becomes loosened, and particles that do not belong in, in the brain can actually, you know, can leak in there and trigger uh, you know, a very significant level of inflammation because the, the actual cells that are in the brain to protect the neurons, they actually go into this kind of like hypervigilant response, much like the immune system in, in, the, in the rest of the body will, will do. And so they'll actually end up damaging neurons. So that can be part of it. And then also too, we do see a change in the production of certain, you know, chemicals. So, uh, you know, things that are especially relevant, we'll see oftentimes deficiencies in the brain too. So we might, uh, we often see things like magnesium deficiencies, which mm. kind of ties back to absorption through the gut. So that that could be a part of it. Uh, we'll see certain key vitamins not getting into the brain the way they should. And that will influence the speed at which the cells will function, which actually I think I can even step back a little bit further and say that that is kind of the film negative to thyroid hormone is do the cells have the nutrition they need to perform their, their task. So, I mean, you, even if you get T3 to the cell, do you have the vitamin A that you need? Do you have the zinc? Do you have the magnesium? Do you have the core nutrients that are involved in the DNA encoding process that leads to the production of proteins? Uh, so these proteins in the brain would be your, you know, your neurotransmitters and other key proteins. Uh, likewise, in, in the, you know, the eyes is the color. It's the ones that allow you to see color and things like that. So uh, a lot of times we'll see that that part is also missing. So that's the other side that needs to be looked at is core nutrition. And then with that also mitochondrial function, which is the other part of energy and, you know, brain fog too, I find. And then if you've got the leaky brain going on and your blood brain barrier is breaking down, then you're also getting all those, uh, those chemicals, those neurotoxins coming through, okay. which yep. aren't supposed to get through. Yeah. Yeah. And then with that too, we see that the brain is very sensitive to a lot of the environmental chemicals and, and toxins we were mentioning briefly earlier on. And so that's an influencing thing. So, I mean, brain fog, I mean, there's a lot of possible causation. Thyroid's a huge piece to it. Uh, I've seen it also things like mold is another big one. Uh, I find that that, you know, the mycotoxins associated with that can cause a lot of problems with the brain. So that, that uh, can also be a culprit as well. And then even, uh, you know, circling all the way back to candida when we talked earlier, we see that those toxins produced can seep into the brain and influence the functionality of the cells there. So there's a lot of different ways that the brain can be affected through just a lot of it is toxicity. So if you see someone who, you know, they're complaining about brain fog and mm -hmm. they're complaining about memory loss, and then you do some labs and you go, okay, uh, you do have elevated TSH and you've got, you know, mm -hmm. some low T4 and you've got some high reverse T3. Um, do you then start testing for things like candida as well? Or do you just kind of assume like, well, there's probably some gut issue here. So mm -hmm. do you start to treat the gut at that point? 
I typically do a, uh, some additional testing. Some of my favorite tests are things like the organic acids panel. Uh, and especially like, you know, using um, Great, Great Plains, they have got a really good one. Uh, and so what I typically will look at, and, and, and the advantage there is you can actually see as an example, let's take serotonin as an example, we can see if the gut is influencing its production or dopamine for that matter. You can see that, you know, like a high, you know, like Clostridium species, if it's high, can alter the production of dopamine and influence, uh, you know, anxiety as an example. Mm -hmm. um, and likewise, we'll see serotonin, its pathway could be altered. And it'll actually go down a more uh, neurotoxic pathway. Um, so I do look at, look at the gut and I do look at mitochondrial function and that test kind of off offers as a glance at both. Um, so that really gives me some, 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 you know, some clarity as to where to go with things. Because I try to be as like laser focused as possible because it is very easy to go down like a treatment rabbit hole and maybe not be exactly on. And I, you know, I want to be conscientious of the patient's time and, you know, resources. And I want them to feel better as quickly as possible. But yeah, you have to deal with the thyroid. But at the same time, you have to sometimes look a lot deeper. Sometimes it's like pretty obvious what to do. And, but when it, when it's not absolutely laser uh, clear as to what to do, I, I'll do something like the organic acids panel to really just like, you know, blow the doors open. You're like, Oh, it's that right there. That is the, the cause. And I'm also looking at things like, you know, viruses. I mean, that's another big issue too. So, so do you use a, do you use like a GI map for that or, or yeah, how do you find I, viruses? Well, typically, I mean, a lot of times well, the viruses are a little trickier because I, I'll do like lab blood tests and when you're looking for those, you're looking at the antibodies, which is the immune's response to the virus. But the question is, is the virus still a factor? Um, and uh, there are, there's plenty of research that does indicate that, you know, if you are getting a really high immune response, like an IgG response, that there is probably something still going on. I mean, like Epstein-Barr is a good example. It's part of the herpes family. And so herpes don't go away. They, they are always present. So that is something that it's a matter of like, is the immune system keeping up with keeping it at bay? Mm -hmm. So, and um, there is actually, I was just reading today, so a really interesting article about human herpes virus six and how that actually invades neurons and can be a major cause for things like uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, which parallels thyroid very closely in, in many ways. Mm. And, so that could be a part, part of it too. So I tend to look at labs. I will use the GI map. And, you know, if I do see like the Epstein-Barr virus high, they're shedding virus in the stool. That's tell, a tell cytomegalovirus as well. Um, I typically go more the labs, uh, blood labs directly. And even so, that's not perfect. Sure. Yeah. And I know there can be an issue with, uh, and, and fun I think functional medicine is, is so, <laughs> is, uh, is famous for this, which is like, you know, you can drop a lot of money on tests and, and still really not be able to get a good picture of what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. do you go down the like botanical, um, road? Do you, do you treat things with like botanicals, like a, um, you know, like an oregano oil or, or something like that to get at the gut? Yeah. I mean, I'll use a number of different things. Uh, you know, sometimes we'll have situations in which, you know, you might have to use the oregano, you might need to use, uh, like, uh, you know, some rosemary or things like that would be a appropriate uh, garlic extract. Sometimes I'll use things like that. Uh, it just depends on what we're dealing with. And so I, I do try to be a little bit more like directly locked into um, 
you know, like if I've got H. pylori, I'll be, you know, reaching for one thing more your, you know, your berberines and things like that. Uh, and then uh, if I'm dealing with candida, I'm probably going more oregano um, and uva ursi and things like that. So those are some of the herbs I would, I would be typically using there. It's really dependent on the specifics um, and it's always a balancing act. I mean, oregano is a fantastic thing. But don't take it straight. Always take capsules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It can be pretty brutal <laughs> for yeah. sure. Um, with, uh, with something like chronic fatigue syndrome, um, you, you'd kind of alluded to that. Um, do you see thyroid playing into that? Because I've personally seen chronic fatigue and Hashimoto's going together. And I guess it would make sense if the thyroid is literally producing mm -hmm. a molecule that gives cells energy and somebody mm -hmm. is um, dealing with a chronic fatigue issue. But I, I know chronic fatigue is a, is a little more involved. Is, is this something that yeah. you see a lot? Yeah, actually I do quite a bit. Um, and what's particularly interesting is that uh, since the brain is so affected with chronic fatigue, it begs the question, how resilient is the hypothalamus in terms of its registering that there's enough thyroid hormone circulating. So since it is the kind of the thermostat for production of thyroid, is it as healthy as it could be? Meaning that will it, it actually produce an accurate amount of TSH so that it actually meets the body's needs. So that's a really important thing. And there is some research that shows that, you know, you know, in chronic fatigue that the TSH may not be produced at an adequate amount. So the, the lab may look normal TSH. Oh, that looks great, but it's not, it's not um, reflecting what the cellular bodies, what the needs are in the cells themselves. So it kind of throws the TSH a little bit out the window potentially. Yeah. The, the HPA axis is such a wild beast. And it's so, it's so interesting to me because it's literally like you're, like you said, the thermostat and how is the thermostat interpreting the environment? And, mm -hmm. and then it goes to the next level, which is, is it overreacting? You know, is it, is it, is it finally tuned? And, and then you can get into some things, I think with like trauma, you know, or, oh, uh, or, you know, and then it's, it's kind of like now the mind body connection is flipped up again, where it's now the mind controlling the body and then the body mm -hmm. comes back and controls the mind. Um, you know, there's this great book, it's called The Body Keeps the Score. I'm sure you've heard of it or read it. Yes. Um, yeah. And we're slowly working my way through it, but it's amazing that, you know, in life we have these, and I think everybody has it, some some degree of trauma. And for many people, it's mm -hmm. on a spectrum. For some people it's, it's worse. And, yeah. you know, for some people it's a little less, but we all have a little bit of it. And sure. I think it's, it's controlling that thermostat mm -hmm. more than really any one supplement or, or yeah. treatment can actually, can actually um, treat. Well, you know, that raises a really interesting point. Um, there's a real clear connection between, uh, you know, this sort of emotional resiliency and the thyroid. And um, what's interesting there, that actually kind of inserts itself kind of in the thyroid hormone conversion process. So if we see like say an adrenal related issue, a lot of times you see, you know, massive stress can alter the, the actual way that the adrenals respond to, you know, the cortisol production and things like that. In, in response to stress, a lot of times that can really influence the conversion from T4 to T3. Really high cortisol can slow that process down. Really low cortisol, kind of like an adrenal fatigue syndrome, can also slow that down as well. And um, so it, it, when it comes to like trauma itself, that could be a real big influence to the thyroid in terms of 
the way it interprets the body's needs. A lot of times I'd see that thyroid or, or the body itself is trying to put on the brakes, like, whoa, slow it down. This is too much. We can't deal. And it is almost not, I won't say irrelevant, but somewhat irrelevant to what the, what the person wants and needs in the sense that they're horribly fatigued, but the body still wants to put on the brakes. It's almost like it's just like, stop everything. I want to figure this out is, is, is how the body's responding. And so I often see that even as it applies to say medication, as an example, the, a patient might need more medication than their body can tolerate. So it's like the, the body's too fragile to even go back to normal. That's a huge piece. And then would the, would the liver play into that? Probably like the liver is just physically not up for processing these different, you know, like you said, like the body needs more medication than it's ready for what might not be ready because the liver just physically can't. And then the, the stress on the liver then causes a whole new stress on the body. Yeah, that's certainly absolutely part of it. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the the interrelationship between the endocrine system. A lot of it's the brain to the adrenals, brain to the thyroid, brain to other tissues as well. So it's it's yeah, it's when you really kind of get into the 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 actual details, it's just like wow, this is like instant ice cream headache head explodes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just thinking about the endocrine system, I mean, is uh, it's a headache in itself. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask you, I, I yeah, can't believe sure. I didn't ask you this earlier, but sure, of course. Um, you know, what is free? Cause we've talked about T4, T3, reverse T3. We talked about uh, yes. the labs, um, but we didn't talk about free T3. And uh, I'm curious yes. how that works into everything, what that even means to begin with. Right. So free T3, I mean, well, T3 itself, that's the the, the, the actual hormone that, like I mentioned before, is the biologically active form. Uh, so as it relates to labs, uh, when you're measuring T3, it's either bound to a chaperone protein or it's free floating. And so free floating is the ones that are readily actively able to bind to cells to trigger energy production or protein production, whatever that cell may do. So um, it's, I always measure both at least to get a a baseline because um, sometimes people might have a really low free T3, but have a normal total T3, which is the bound protein uh, part of that. So uh, a lot of times there could be, you know, sometimes there's excess chaperone protein or the carrier protein. So that can be another piece to the puzzle that could be a challenge as well. But free T3 is the one that's most relevant for looking at biologically active T3. What can your body use immediately? So is there, is there a way to, to optimize free T3 versus the bound T3? Yeah. I mean, usually if there is like really, really high, um, like too much of this carrier protein that could be related to the, the sex hormones. I'm sorry to add more complication to this, but yeah. it's, so we're, oh, we're, already, we're already down this rabbit we're, hole. We're, People we're are there. in Wikipedia. We don't know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's on, it's on. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So really um, a lot of times as an example, uh, it especially applies to women. If they have like estrogen dominance, they're going to have a lot more of that protein, And so they may actually have a lower free T3. So sometimes it's about balancing the hormones as an example. Mm. So that's another piece I look at too. I'm using like the Dutch test as an example, a lot for, for that, for like adrenals and adrenal function and sex hormones. So there is another wrinkle to the whole picture. And so that's one of the things you have to look at. And again, it's all relative to the person's issues. Not everybody's going to have the same set of issues. And that's why I'm kind of like always kind of like looking very specifically at their history, what we're seeing on labs and, and 
when you do a complete lab panel, you're going to pick that up. You're like, oh, there it is. And then, then you can kind of get really into that. And then you can actually take, make efforts to reduce um, the, you know, elevated estrogen and, and things of that nature. Yeah. And it seems like, it seems like the thyroid is such a valuable panel to have because it almost seems like this gland that's just downstream from all of the, like there's all these problems happening mm-hmm. and you see it all in the thyroid. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, 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 it's really kind of a cornerstone cornerstone organ that, you know, if it's not functioning right, the rest is going down the tubes. I mean, every tissue in the body, skin, brain, digestive tract, you know, you know, your sensory organs, all of it is dependent on the thyroid function correctly. So it's, it's definitely a big, big factor. And the last thing I wanted to add, well, two last things I want to ask you. Um, uh, so I know when we talk about thyroid, I know, uh, for women, it's, it's a big issue, but do you also see men with thyroid issues? And, and for yeah. men, how does this typically manifest? Like if you're a guy and you've got, cause I know a lot of guys have brain fog and a lot of guys have depression, maybe yeah. you don't think it's thyroid, but are there any other triggers for a guy that would make you think like, okay, maybe I should get my thyroid panel done? Well, absolutely. And I, and I mean, first off, it took about, if you're talking about statistics, I mean, definitely uh, women out, uh, outnumber men nine to one relative to thyroid issues. But I think men are really uh, underdiagnosed because in a lot of ways, a lot of the symptoms that are associated with thyroid symptom wise are, are somewhat different. I mean, like fatigue is going to be a commonality weight gain potentially, but what I commonly see for men is really low testosterone. Mm. So that is very much influenced by the thyroid, as you would expect. And so um, a lot of times the low, low, thyro- uh, the low uh, testosterone can really influence a lot of things. So uh, you may have the hypothyroidism and the low testosterone. And if you balance those both out and, you know, kind of create that balance point, then you often see that resolving quite nicely. So I, I do see that as a very common theme. You have this low testosterone and um, you've got like the low libido and all things you would expect. And, you know, oftentimes the average age I see for men with thyroid issues are like late thirties, early forties. They're like, you know, a lot of times they just hear, oh, you're getting old, you know, you're not quite the, the spring chicken you once were. And that's the way it is. But I find that that's not really the case. Yeah. Yeah. Testosterone for men. It's, I mean, the way that we think about testosterone, like, you know, we think like, oh, if I've got testosterone, I'm just amped up all the time. And and then right. I think actually it's even more complicated than that because it could actually mm-hmm. be, well, you're, you're moody and you are, you know, you're wired and tired and you're not sleeping well. And, mm-hmm. um, and then of course that plays into the thyroid because the thyroid is powering all of these other things as well. Well, and absolutely. And, and, you know, there's plenty of research that shows that testosterone influences the thinking process in men. So it, you know, it, it influences brain health. So, I mean, it is, you know, there's a direct correlation to, you know, to that and, and moodiness, but also the clarity of thought and how well you're functioning there. So if you're, if you're, that's low, we'll see that, that, so that could be a very direct cause of brain fog itself, in addition to the thyroid issue. Exactly. So when it comes to diet and supplements, do, is there like an ideal thyroid diet? Are there any foods you want to specific? I know we talked about, you know, organic, non-organic, but like I'm thinking mm-hmm. foods, you know, I've heard of goitrogens and a lot of cruciferous mm-hmm. vegetables. Right. You know, I hear a lot of people doing more the keto diet and, and doing mm-hmm. their thyroid. Well, like w- what would you say is a, is a good kind of general 
you know, rule of thumb with diet. Right. With diet, I, the, the, the absolute, absolute there is anti-inflammatory. I mean, if we get down to the, just the bare bones, anti-inflammatory, you know, avoiding the processed foods, being very conscientious of eating healthy vegetables, fruit. Now with the cruciferous vegetables, uh, research shows that if you eat a lot of it raw, it's a problem. If you are eating it cooked, not so much. So your broccoli and all that, not so much of an issue, uh, because you know, uh, you know, they they that was often something that was talked about. Like, hey, this could be a real issue, but you'd have to be seriously putting away some major amounts of broccoli raw to actually have that suppress the thyroid. So it, it's not really going to be an issue. Now, it, uh, cruciferous vegetables can certainly cause a lot of gas, so they might be dealing with some other issues digestively, eating a lot of raw vegetables there, but. A lot of times I find people do well on like an autoimmune paleo as an example. Keto can be good. Um, I typically modify that because for me, keto is more geared towards people with seizure disorders or diabetes. Um, so, I mean, some people get some great benefits from keto and others don't. So it's, it is, uh, you know, oftentimes down to the individual. I find most people tolerate kind of a autoimmune paleo, but it should be noted that that's an elimination diet. So people should follow that at its at its core for very long. It's just typically eight weeks and then seeing what foods are problematic for you. But ultimately I think that the biggies are getting nutrient dense foods, you know, plenty of zinc, plenty of, uh, of, uh, mineral, other minerals. I mean, magnesium, you know, iron, iron's an important player for thyroid as well. So, uh, I, I really kind of look at the foundation of, are they getting quality foods? Because, you know, I've seen plenty of people who are eating um, AIP and you go into their actual, what they're eating. I'm like, well, that's not actually very healthy. You're just picking cherry picking this, this, and that. So I've seen the same be said for vegan vegetarian. Sometimes I'm like, you're vegetarian. Where's the vegetables? You're a pastafarian is what you are. Yeah. Oreo cookie vegetarians. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, yeah. So it, it, it comes down to fundamentals of a healthy diet for sure. I mean, as a foundation, I find that, uh, you know, like uh, autoimmune paleo or paleo is a good start starting point. I'm kind of leaning more towards a Mediterranean paleo. So, but very, very vegetable dense. You, you can't get away from the vegetables. They're, they've got to be there. Um, of course, some people have sensitivity to things like nightshades, uh, you know, your tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants, and so on. Uh, but, you know, as a general whole, vegetables are really the key thing and healthy proteins and things, stuff like that. Well, you heard it here first folks. Vegetables are good. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> don't, don't cut out those vegetables. Um, we have a, some podcasts with some carnivores coming up, but, uh, well, okay. no, I'm okay. just, no, uh, but this has been actually really, um, informative. This has been, uh, I have so many more questions, but I want to be respectful of your time. I think, uh, you know, if you are interested in learning more about Dr. Sean, definitely check out your book, the thyroid fix mm -hmm. that's available on Amazon. Yeah, um, right here. there it is. Uh, we'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we, uh, before we sign off here anywhere that the listeners can find you learn more about you um any educational yeah. material you might have yeah i am drsaska.com and um, i've got a couple of ebooks available uh, and i'm actually just releasing a new one in relationship to thyroid and um the the toxins involved in that process and that's available on my website as well so uh, and i got book number two coming out ho hopefully by the end of the year and the working title is the the uh thyroid detox and um, I'm working on getting that wrapped up here pretty soon. 
Wow. So cool. Well, we'll have to have you on again when that book comes out. So you can talk a lot about it because, uh, you know, I'll have another whole bunch of questions for you, awesome. uh, cause the, the environmental toxicity, it is a rabbit hole and, uh, I want to oh, do everything yeah. I can to learn as much Absolutely. about it as I can, but, um, Absolutely. this has been so cool. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Sean, for more on Dr. Sean, be sure to check out the show notes that we'll have linked in the description on the video and in the podcast. And for more on all things, holistic health, nootropics, and everything you can do to empower your brain enhancement. Be sure to check out holisticnootropics.com. Thanks so much for watching and listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Peace. Thanks for listening. For more brain boosting info, in-depth articles, and show notes, check out holisticnootropics.com.